A thing that looks like a police box standing in a junkyard. It can move anywhere. Maven, concentrate on sin. Give priority to the detectors and the navigation systems. There is a corridor. And the corridor is time. It surrounds all things. On display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar. That's the display department. With a torch. The lights are probably gone. So had the stairs. You are just number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Welcome to British Invaders, episode 393. This is the podcast all about British science fiction television, and this time we are talking about The Georgian House. This is Brian from Canada. And this is Eamon from England. Hello. Yes, we are looking at the remaining episodes of a 1976 ITV children's serial. It originally ran for seven 25-minute episodes in colour, but unfortunately only episodes 1, 3 and 7 survive in the archive in colour, which is not always the case with some of the recovered episodes from the 1970s, but we do have them in colour. We'll talk about the quality of those uh, surviving episodes later on. Yes, that's right, and it's a single story and we're missing parts of it, so that's a little bit new as something for us to cover. And this is what's sometimes called a time slip story, that is a time travel story where the characters have very limited control on how they slip from one time to another. And in this case, it has some interesting things to say about British history and introduces some difficult concepts to a young audience and I think is good at revealing some history that is not always that well known. Yes, we're going to talk about some of the history uh, that this discusses particularly when we get to our next episode. But yeah, it's it's fascinating. It almost makes up for the missing episodes. Yes, absolutely. So the setup, we have two young history students, sort of in their upper teens maybe, who have won the chance to work in this restored 18th century Georgian house. And they are going to be helping with using this house as a museum, with setting things up in it and acting as tour guides, showing tourists some exhibits and some of the rooms in this 18th century restored house. But while they're getting involved in the uh, sort of preparations for opening this museum, they discover a strange artifact in the Georgian house, a carved piece of African wood, which, uh, well, basically has a strange effect on them when they touch it. And soon they are, as you suggested in our intro, Brian, they are time slipping back in time over 200 years to 1772, still in the same house, but suddenly find themselves caught up in the life of the family who lived in the house back in 1772. The family who owned it, the family who sort of very much an upper class or upper middle class family, and they're caught up in their life. Yes, so they're going back into the very history that they had been studying. So looking at the characters, Dan was played by Spencer Banks, who we remember from a couple of earlier shows, from Time Slip from 1970 and Penda's Fen from 1974. Dan is this upper class young man from a private school waiting for his A-level results before going to university 
University, and this is his summer job uh, because he loves history and wants to do this sort of work experience summer job looking at some of this history in this restored home. And always great to watch a show that's got Spencer Banks in it. It's a very sort of reassuring presence on 70s TV. He was quite a reliable young actor in the 70s, for sure. With him is Abby, played by the actress Adrienne Byrne. Like Dan, she is a student waiting for her A-level results, also hoping to go to university and read either history or archaeology. She has also won the opportunity to work in this Georgian house in a sort of summer job, but slightly different. She is the comprehensive school student. She is, and of course it's very British, I'm afraid, but she is of a different class to Dan. And we get this slight interaction between him being rather a posh private school boy and her coming from the more sort of -of run-of-the-mill, common, comprehensive school. So there's an interesting little sort of interaction there which then gets strangely reversed but we'll come to that yes and they do some fun things with the accents of those of both of those characters as well mr ellis played by jack watson the well-known character actor is a no-nonsense caretaker of this georgian house ex-military man who is the boss for both of our lead characters in the present day and he clearly wants to run this like a military operation and have everything done exactly to the letter and when these teenagers start disappearing some of the time he is more than a little frustrated with that he is indeed and perhaps we should also mention that he's also slightly surprised when abby turns up because he was expecting two male students and finding one of them is a young woman student so rather disconcerts him as well so poor Abby's not only got the class difference, she's got sort of certain gender roles and uh, prejudice against her from that basis as well. Yes, and they do, I think, actually challenge that character's sexism a little bit, which is interesting. Then, back in 1772, we'll mention a couple of the characters. We have Ungo, played by Brinsley Ford. Now, you might recognise the name Brinsley Ford as a member of the British band Aswad from the mid-1970s onwards. Viewers or listeners of my age and generation may also recognise him as one of the Double Deckers from the 1970 TV show Here Comes the Double Deckers, which was a great fun children's show. Here he is, the young servant to the Ledbetter family back in 1772. I say he's a young servant, but actually, Brian, we probably should clarify, shouldn't we? Yes, he is quite clearly a slave, and there are lots of references to this. In fact, this show is really about the history of slavery in Great Britain, and uh, Ungo and his fate is quite central to this whole story. Yes, indeed. Uh, we're getting to the nub of it now, but what this show is about and the difficult history that it discusses. Yes, absolutely. Thomas Ledbetter, played by Peter Schofield, is the owner of this 1772 Georgian house and is, like Mr. Ellis, a very no-nonsense character. He is a successful businessman whose fortune is based on sugar plantations and very much based on slavery. And the idea of how he sees these people who are enslaved 
is something that is central to this story as well. Yes, indeed. And I think, you know, he's had this house built for his family, or at least certainly redecorated in the highest possible style for his family in 1772. They're quite well to do from his business. Yes, this is definitely a wealthy family yeah, that we're dealing with in the past. So getting into a little bit more of what happens in the, the story here, Dan and Abby travel back to 1772 and for some reason are expected by the Ledbetter family. They are expecting a visiting cousin from Cornwall and Abby very quickly slots into that role and is, as far as they know, this cousin, distant cousin, who they had never met. That's right. And Dan, in a role reversal, has now become her servant boy, has become a sort of below-stairs character. And interestingly, as you say, Brian, Abby is quite caught up in this. She seems to be time-slipped into the personality of the visiting cousin and is quite happily carrying on as the cousin. Dan is completely baffled by this because he seems to retain the 1975-76 aspect of it. He finds it very difficult to fit into the role of a servant below stairs. He also finds it quite difficult at first to convince Abby that something is not right and that they have slipped back in time. And it takes him a while to sort of uh, get through to her, I think. Yeah, it takes us a little while to realise that Abby is actually still Abby with her original personality and everything. She has just adopted this role very convincingly and even convinced Dan for a little while. So that was sort of an interesting setup to it. And time slipping in this seems to change people's clothing to the period clothing that they're going into as well, which is, I guess, something that saves on some extra complications along the way. And hairstyles as well, it seems, Brian. Yes, absolutely. And they, of course, meet this character, Ungo, and uh, are very concerned for his welfare. And they discuss whether they can find out more about him when they go back to the 1970s. And we get this idea of the research in the present and the things happening in the past sort of connecting up to each other. So I think we should get into our production notes. We start with one of ITV's franchise networks. HTV was Harlock TV originally and covered the southwest of England and all of Wales. And the network was started in 1967 with an impressive group of directors on its board, people like Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, the opera singers Sir Gerard Evans, and even the former Goon Show star Harry Seacombe. But it was in the 70s that we start hearing a lot from HTV. Yes, because students of British television history and ITV networks will know that in the 1970s, HTV almost became the go-to network for high-quality children's television dramas, some of which we have discussed on the show. For instance, I'll mention a few. Sky in 1975, famously Children of the Stones in 1977, one of the um, 
defining programmes from the 70s, if not from all of British television there, Brian. And then I think they did both the Clifton House mystery and the Doom Vault chase, and both in about 78. That's right. I also mentioned She-Wolf of London and King of the Castle, which we've covered as well. So they really are the place to go to, as I say, for doing these very interesting, quite complex children's television serials. And we know that in 1975, producer Leonard White, there's a name we've heard before, he approached the writers Jill Lorimore and Harry Moore because he wanted a new TV series, a new drama series from them. Yes, and we have talked about Leonard White recently as one of the producers and co-creators of The Avengers. So he was certainly involved in a lot of things with ITV. And both Jill Lorimer and Harry Moore had previously worked on ITV television play series. Jill Lorimer would also become a novelist. And Harry Moore would go on to co-create the Clifton House mystery a little later on. And that was also something that was set in Bristol like the Georgian house is. So the brief from Leonard White was to do a seven-episode serial with a limited budget that would be entirely studio-based. That's right. They'd come up with this plan to basically just build four sets in a studio and that those four sets would be reused throughout the whole series. They would have to shoot just on four sets. Jill Lorimore recalls that this was all a bit of a rush process because, and I think we've heard this before with various programmes over the years, Brian, a gap in the schedule had opened up when another production had run into difficulties. And so the planned children's show for this coming up slot at the start of 1976 wasn't going to get done. So it was all a bit of a rush job. Yeah, that certainly was common in the 60s and 70s for sure and yeah it makes sense doing this all video show with a small number of sets it was something that would be required to fill a gap and required and on fairly short order now jill Lorimore remembered from her own school days visiting the actual preserved georgian house in bristol and she thought about this as possibly you know a good setting for the series that's right. And the idea that a time travel show could make good use of that small number of sets, of just having four sets, was something else she was thinking about. Because you could have one set used for present day and also for the past just by changing the set dressings and the costumes of the the people who were there. They're sort of doubling the value of these four sets instantly, it seems. Yeah, that's right. And the real Georgian House Museum in Great George Street in Bristol was built in 1790 for the slave owner and sugar trader John Penny. And we know that he did have a so-called servant, actually a slave, called Perro Jones, who is now remembered with a footbridge named after him in Bristol. Yes, not quite the sort of same as our Ungo character, but certainly a bit of a local well-known character in Bristol gets, as you say, a bridge named after him now. Now, the name for the show was originally proposed to be called Adam's House, which Jill Lorimore's notes tell us was based on the architect Robert Adam, at the time, they thought that actually calling it the Georgian house would be a bit too close to the the real Bristol house. 
and that you know the writers thought perhaps they should avoid the actual museum name but it seems the production team were now were quite excited about that they were quite excited about calling it the georgian house and actually using these four sets to very carefully recreate the restored rooms from the actual museum and that's pretty much what we what we get they went to some lengths to sort of make the sets look very similar to what you can actually see in the existing museum, Brian. Yes, it seems like the producers and possibly even the higher-ups at HTV were quite enthusiastic about doing this and the sort of educational aspect of it. And that's nice to see that people from higher up want to embrace that and do do something like this well. In the notes on the DVD release, Jill Lorimer said that she and Harry Moore did feel like some of the money spent on all of these lavish sets and costumes maybe could have allowed them to do some exterior filming and maybe... While, yes, it was uh, videotape-only four-set production that they were putting so much so much into that that maybe the money could be spent elsewhere. That does sound like something that the writers would say rather than people involved in production work. I, I suspect even with the amount they were putting into that, that they were still at a lower budget than something involving exterior work and involving filming. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, interesting note that the the question comes up. And if you visit the website for the actual Georgian House Museum, you can see some pictures that show just how close the sets were to the actual rooms that are open to the public there. And you can, of course, visit the actual museum. I haven't done so, but if anybody has, particularly if they know know whether there's any reference in the museum to the tv show please let us know yes that would be interesting to hear from anyone who's in bristol or who has visited bristol and visited the the georgian house the georgian house was broadcast weekly in a tea time slot on the itv network starting january 2nd 1976 and that seems to be it i haven't found details of any repeat uh, airings i'd have to to find the equivalent of the BBC Genome Project to see if I can look up TV Times listings. And sadly, only episodes one and seven survived in the official archive. I initially thought that this might be because they just kept the first and the last almost like for a showreel for the producers and writers and so on. But then I found some evidence on the internet from a Missing Episodes website that suggests that the whole series was intended to be copied onto VHS video at some point in the 80s, possibly for a classic TV convention at the time. But it seems like that process didn't work out, Brian, unfortunately. Yeah, there are sometimes oddities with things like that, and we can end up with episodes surviving in all sorts of odd ways. And in this case, episodes two and six may have been damaged in the process, and originals and anything directly derived from the originals 
they don't survive. Those quadruplex master tapes they used at the time in the 70s, they would degrade. And yeah, it can be hit and miss if things are not explicitly archived at the time, which certainly did not always happen. Now, it turns out someone did make an off-air video recording with an early VCR. There were some available in the 70s of episode three so we do have versions we can watch of episodes one three and seven but the other four are not available to us in any form and we should perhaps add that episodes one and seven look fairly sharp but episode three is quite obviously an off-air recording isn't it brian (laughs) yes there is a big difference there but it is still something we can watch and it's still quite easy to follow and to understand the dialogue and so on so availability of this series here in region two uh, apparently there was some considerable interest in getting the surviving episodes out on dvd so our old friends network tv put out a dvd release in 2010 which contains those three surviving episodes You've heard us refer to them. There's some liner notes from the writer Jill Lorimore, which is very helpful. Plus, on the DVD, you will find some PDFs, which are original sort of concept breakdown notes for the first four episodes, and PDFs of the scripts for episodes three to six all which come from, I think, Jill Lorimore's own collection, basically, of her own work. And thankfully, they do exist, because it does sort of let us fill in the gaps between the missing episodes, Brian. Yes, we do have something for covering what happens in the the missing parts of the story. And it is limited, and we'll talk more about that next time. So I should just add that that's currently about £7 for that DVD over here in Region 2. But of course, in Region one it's much more tricky i'm afraid brian well there is no release in region one i'm not aware of any north american broadcasts although it's possible that there was something in the 70s or early 80s but there is no dvd release in region one amazon.com currently has an import of the region two version for ten dollars plus five dollars shipping okay so that's going to wrap up the first part of our discussion of this incomplete uh, show the georgian house come back and join us next time we're going to get into a few more elements of the story and we're really going to try and get into some of the history that this series covers and how we think about the problematic nature of the past, of past events. Um, some of the difficulties that we're going to talk about next time. Yes, yeah, so we'll get a little bit more into what the serial was doing at the time, looking at the past, and then what our perspective is looking back at the serial and back at the history that it's covering. So definitely some interesting stuff there. And we will also talk about watching an incomplete serial and the nature of what we have to look at for this. And, you know, I will just put out a warning. We will be talking about some small p political issues. We do occasionally get messages about that, Brian. But yes, people have been warned. We are going to get into some of the politics that this show discusses and its relation to, as you say, what we've been uh, dealing with more recently. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's some of the most interesting things with a show like this is being able to look into some of those issues. And we'll definitely have some interesting things to say on that next time.
Until then, you can find us at BritishInvaders.com. Or if you search for British Invaders on Facebook, you can find our group there and join in on some of the discussion. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at BritInvadersPod. So please feel free to get in touch with us that way too. And also follow what we're up to as part of the Voice of Geeks Network, which you'll find at vognetwork.com. Uh, that's the Voice of Geeks, particularly for all your gaming interests, but also a few podcasts, including British Invaders. Absolutely. So thank you for listening. And this is Brian from Canada signing off. Yes, thank you very much. Until we time slip again, it's Eamon in England also signing off.